Welcome to Education Today, where we'll have conversations with the educators, thought leaders, researchers, and entrepreneurs whose perspectives on teaching and learning are defining and driving innovation in K-12 education. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. Each episode, we'll dig into topics, including how schools are succeeding with technology, current best practices in pedagogy and instruction, the data-driven insights that are changing our understanding of teaching and learning, and much, much more. And now, let's get on to today's show. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We're going to be spending time with Leilani Cawthon. She's CEO and publisher of the Learning Council. I know a lot of you know her uh, by her first name uh, and all that she does in education. Well, Leilani, it's nice to be catching up with you. We were talking off air about the last time that we were able to sync up in person, and it was at uh, ISTE a couple of years ago. But what I love about what you're doing with the Learning Council is, one, you have fantastic information for people in the field and the practice of education and the leadership surrounding education, uh, and you do it in a number of different ways. I'd like to sort of glean from you what you've seen over the last couple of years when it comes to this digital transition in schools. How are we, are we how successful are we being uh, from your perspective, and what are some gaps that we need to be aware of? Yeah, uh, so what I'm, what I'm really seeing is, is you know, the transition, and the, the, the issue is in transitioning, where are we going, right? So this is what schools are often, sort of faced with. And there's a lot of schools that I'm, I'm seeing on the road who come to our events now who've maybe had uh, the one-to-one initiative, you know, a device for every single kid uh, for five, maybe even six years now. And they feel stagnant. Um, they feel like what's next. And the fact is the average district has anywhere between 1,000 and 10,000 different apps circulating around which is unlike anything in the commercial sector and it's very confusing and they're they're groping now for what i say is the real transition that's similar to what has happened in other industries you know like uber you know sort of shoved aside the taxi companies and amazon beat out everybody and killed sears and everybody else so there's really a a true change that's coming. And I've been talking about it for quite a few years. This last year, we put out, uh, you know, what it will look like when all technologies sort of converge and come together and and, uh, schools and districts start rearranging what the human personnel are actually doing. Uh, Of course, the first thing that comes up is teachers are like, oh, I'll be out of a job. Technology is going to eat my job. You know, it's, uh, it's actually not true. Actually, the, the, the real issue is going to be the issue of how, how schools and districts use people for their human quality. Um, so that's really what, what I've been looking at is how do we, how do, we, do, how do, we do this? How do, we, how do we make people understand that there's, there's a really significant change coming and it won't look the same as it's always been? but it will be a fit for everybody that's currently there, probably more flexible, probably more adapted to the human uh, teaching troops than it's ever been. Because right now, you know, 3.3 million teachers, they're all pretty much in the same bucket and they have to sort of do all the same things. And it's not really a human condition for that many people to be the same, you know. Um, And also students will get highly personalized uh, workflow-based learning. So that's that's what we're looking at as we look at the convergence of all the technologies and all our surveys. And really, when we're on the road, 
one of the things we talk about is the fact that we're in a trend pattern of change. We've been leading people up the sort of stair steps of natural maturity. Every year we, we, we led them from like the first floor to the second floor in the last seven years. Now, now we've turned around and said, we got to kind of go down into the basement and go on that first step now too, because there's so many districts that haven't even sort of hit the bottom rung of, of you know, the upper staircase. So they, they, they can't even get there. I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up. So, cause I was going to ask you, are we even prepared? I mean, have we started that sort of the initial planning to be ready for that transfer? But I, you know, you're starting to go into it that in essence, we do have to sort of look and go down to the basement. And, and my, mm-hmm. my question for you would be then how do we avoid what I think the general public sees as a very reactionary industry in education that, you know, we wait until the 11th hour to then sort of implement or look at change. And then we're already sort of, you know, uh, light years behind where we need to be. Um, how do we avoid that so that we are not only prepared, but I would imagine that you would, you would want people to embrace that, that transition as opposed to come at it, coming at it from a, a position of reticence. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why the posture of the Learning Council has always been since we first got on the road, and even with a lot of our editorializing, we, although we do, do, do try to temper it, it's always been, hey, here's what's actually going on in the outside world, wake up. Um, you know, we feel like, you know, Paul Revere, like they're coming, right? <laughs> and uh, it's happening, and uh, when are you going to get on board, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of our briefings based on the data are, are, they're a little scary for executives, but they're super grateful. They're really, really grateful. Even teachers are like, holy cow. And they get motivated by it. What jumps um, out at them? What scares them? When you're, when you're in a briefing, are there some common data points well, you know, that scare them? Yeah. My book, my book was about the consumerization of learning. And I was, this was four years ago. I was a little... I feel now looking back at it as a little naive because now the book I'm writing right now is called the Uberization of learning because I've seen what technology is going to do as it converges. Um, and I'm, and I'm kind of a software expert anyway. So, but, but when I talk to people about consumerization, what software is really doing outside of schools to bypass them and execute on learning quality directly because it's so skilled I mean, there's a reason that Apple is the brand and, and the amount of wealth that it is today. It, it can, you know, you can pick up an iPad or an iPhone when you're two years old and figure out how to use it. This is true. So if you have software that is so unlike the early days of distance and online learning, that it, it is causal in and of itself, it's doing the teaching. That's what freaks out teachers. And it freaks out schools because they feel like, oh, well, you're saying everything's going to be online. No, it won't be because there's still a need for human interaction. It's what the humans are doing. So I had this experience the other day with one of the companies that does the extremely great math software. Uh, they did a demo at one of our events. And, and at one point, I, got, I, I think I answered in their system incorrectly because everybody was doing it simultaneously on their own uh, devices just to get a feel for it. And, I answered it correctly. I couldn't back it up. So I was mad at the user interface, but I, I actually called over one of their teachers, you know, they, cause the company brought their own like experts and she stood next to me and she forced me to have productive struggle. Um, so I would figure it out, which was amazing. Right. So I get it. 
on a level that a lot of school leaders don't get it. What happens when you bring in software and what the role change is, right? So what is the teacher doing now? Um, but it was fantastic because you have to be trained to do those skills. You can't just be the answer machine because you're competing now as a teacher with the all-powerful, all-knowing internet. And you shouldn't even be in that position. You should be in a different sort of flavor of help. And particularly, you should be more human and challenging and uh, validating. And I think one of the things that came out of our big national survey this last year, so the number one issue in all schools nationally is social-emotional issues with kids. It's, it's, it's spiking big time. Um, and so when I talk philosophically about where things are going for humanity and why I'm saying this is the directionality of the market and why it will inevitably get there, I'm talking, I, I, I usually talk about the fact that you've got this younger population faced with an identity crisis that is fantastically large. They, they, they experience the infinity of the internet all day, every day on their little smartphones by the time they're eight, eight years old. And to them, their first born identity in many instances now is their digital identity. Their physical human identity is secondary. It's like an avatar they carry around. Um, so when they get to school, their, their first born identity is disregarded and they have a, a sort of a blankness to who they are and they're shuttled in with the kids of other grades or other age, you know, the same age in the same grade and they move through, through that grade pattern like, uh, like a manufacturing line, not as an individual. And their task in their life with trying to formulate an identity that is a bulwark against this open internet. Who am I? How do I be as an identity in this vastness of choice and sourcing? You know, and I know, you can go on Amazon, you can buy just about anything in the world and it'll come to your door. They have the perception very early of an infinity of sources, an infinity of other people, they can go on dating apps and swipe through thousands of people in mere minutes. Um, it's not a world anymore that is, that is, you know, a few, like you're just your immediate family and your immediate small town and a small grade batch. You know, you're, you're faced early on with infinity-based logic. And you have to try to build a strength that will match that and we take it away from from kids immediately when they get to school it's a big mistake it's a lack of cognizance of what they're dealing with um and then they they come and they they they're, have social emotional issues but a large part of that is the fact of the internet yeah it's about this this new world that, that we're all a part of you're listening to education today presented by soundtrap for education Make sure to participate in the conversation on Twitter by following at Soundtrap and sharing your thoughts. And now back to today's interview. Let's close with this, Leilani. Uh, recently, we had the pleasure of, of sitting down with Sugata Mitra and, and talking about sort of, you know, historically what he's seen in his hole in the wall experiment in India and the school in the cloud and, 
the impetus for the big question, right? Sort of what's that big question out there? Given, yeah. given, your, given the seat that you uh, occupy within this space and, and what seems like a very active questioner that you are, what is a big question that you're looking to either explore, answer, or sort of just um, sidle up next to, to to see what the resulting uh, information and data points might yield? The biggest, I don't have any questions anymore in the tech arena. I know exactly what's going to happen. And I know the biggest hurdles, the integrations, the issues. And I've formulated a, a model architecture that causes enough flexibility, enough workarounds that it's not going to, for all educators, I tell them, don't try to do something monolithically. It won't work. It will never work in software. Every time you get a Microsoft up, upgrade at midnight when you've just fallen asleep and you wake up in the morning and it takes, you know, 10 more minutes to launch your computer, you know what I mean. If every piece of software out there did that, and it will all change pieces because I think like Pluto was a planet and then it wasn't a planet and now it's a planet again. And so, so you're going to have constant change in learning. So don't ever expect to do this with a single, there's no easy button in the world of knowledge. There never will be, not in the software field. And you have to start thinking about the, the function and the flexibility of what you're going to do. Uh, so my real big concern is not that. My biggest concern, and I'm driving all my attention on this with the sort of stair steps of maturity that we're building now through for the next five years, is how do I take people from that bottom rung of the ladder and redo the humanity side? How do I do that? Because there's a lot of professional development companies out there teaching teachers how to use machines, teaching teachers how to use software, teaching teachers that they're supposed to blend, but they're not changing the structure. The structure has remained the same. And every teacher I talk to, and we do a whole workshop on that this year, uh, we show all the duties of the average teacher. Not a very long list. They start adding to the list. They're like, no, 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 there's way more. There's 30 more things I do every day. And when you really look at that and you step back as an executive and you go, what am I doing to my people? They have no time to eyeball any kids. That's, that's, that's a tragedy. How do we move them into fantastic expertise on the human side? How do we make the humans be more humans? That is what bothers me. How do I help do that? Because if we can take a teacher and take 90% of the load off of her, we have something extraordinary that will happen in physical schools. There will be a reason to not homeschool. Because the experience from a human side will be that wealth of, you know, emotional validation and why you want to go. You and I both know, and everybody knows this, you went to school many times where nobody eyeballed you at all. It's true. Right? And that, that can't continue. That's a poor experience. And it, it won't last. So that's what I'm. That's what I'm really paying the most attention to is is hu is the human side. How do we do that? Well, you've got a lot of wonderful things going on. You're asking fantastic questions, and that helps not only those of us uh, like you and I in this call that work in the space, but as parents as well. And we want to thank you. We want to thank Leilani Coughlin. She's the CEO and publisher of the Learning Council. Here's today's data insight presented by the Learning Council. Teachers are spending a significant amount of their day searching for lessons to use in their lesson planning according to the latest Learning Council research. 55% of teachers are spending up to four hours per week and 32% are spending four to 10 hours per week on this search. That means as a percentage of their work week, 
teachers are spending 10 to 25% of their time searching for lessons, which many feel is a burden that interferes with their ability to be effective teachers. In the second half of today's episode, I'll be speaking with Michael Broach, Academic Dean of Bishop Kenny High School in Jacksonville, Florida, to discuss this date. Spending time today with Michael Broach, he's the Academic Dean, Teacher, and Director of Transportation at Bishop Kenny in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, Michael, it's great to spend some time with you. I know we're, we're talking under circumstances where schools are, are discussing very large and important topics, not only to their, their school buildings, but their communities at large. I want to talk about and dive into today, if you don't mind, some current research that's come out from the Learning Council um, that discusses uh, you know, the amount of time that teachers are spending to search for lessons to be used in their lesson planning. And I know that lesson planning is something that doesn't get talked about a whole lot, I think, in the, in the mass media, but it's something that takes quite a bit of time um, and can impact the day-to-day of a teacher and ultimately, obviously, the experience of a student. But the Learning Council came out in their research and found that 55% are spending up to four hours per week and 32% of the teachers are spending four to 10 hours per week searching. Um, that means that they're spending around, you know, between 10 and 25% of their time searching for lessons. W- what's your response to that? How do you see that play out? And how can we do, I guess, a better job, if that's even the, the correct word to use? Sure. Um, I would probably agree with that statistic. Um, I think part of that is the, the nature of learning has changed. So when I first started teaching, I was handed a textbook and said, here's your curriculum, right? Teach from the textbook and, and go. And so everything I was developing was very teacher-centered. Everything was, you know, on me. I felt responsible that I had to deliver the content um, of the book and more to my students, and that's what we were assessing. Um, as we found, that's not always the best way of learning, and especially in today's age, um, that's not the best mode of instruction. You know, our kids are coming with different you know, have different learning styles. There's definitely things that are more effective. Technology has impacted the classroom. And so it's now forced teachers to really think deeply about how they teach. I know in some schools, um, teachers have many more diverse needs in the classroom, so they have to individualize and differentiate more. Um, in a school like ours, it's a college prep school, um, our expectations and rigor are much higher. So um, I know just on our campus, we have teachers that are combing through Teachers Pay Teachers and looking at uh, professional resources and, and other sites. Um, we use uh, chalk.com for our curriculum development. Um, and what that has allowed us to do is for teachers to collaborate and share lesson plans. Um, so really it comes from, they're trying to think about how to teach better, how to provide more quality instruction, more quality assessments, more quality student experiences, um, you know, as well as to use technology to help support that. So it does take a lot more time. I think it's also important to keep in mind what else a teacher has on his or her plate. Um, Again, I go back to when I started teaching, I could spend my planning period planning and grading. Now it's planning, grading, making sure grades are updated very quickly because everybody wants instant feedback. Real Um, time. Yeah, and then uh, making sure Schoology, our learning management system, now they got to make sure that's updated. Um, and then responding to student emails and parent emails daily. Um, that didn't exist when I started teaching, right? Email was still a relatively new thing. <laughs> not, not dating yourself or anything. <laughs> right. Uh, so, Michael, is this, do you think that this is, if we're talking about, 
you know, sort of the old adage is, you know, put the work in at the outset, and then that can maybe sort of ease some of the burden along the way. Like if we, if we spend the time at the beginning, take, for instance, curriculum mapping, does that, you know, can that be an aid in that regard to your point about technology and these sorts of things so that we're not playing catch up, but we're, we're putting in really thoughtful time, we're seeing the, we're connecting the dots, the proverbial dots. And now, even if we have to spend time, it's more productive time and we're doing it in a collaborative fashion through curriculum mapping. Right. I would agree. And that's why we've loved our curriculum mapping initiative um, because it's been collaborative. Um, it would have been easier and a lot cleaner if I, as the academic dean, had just come in from a top-down approach and said, this is what you're teaching. These are your units. This is how you need to teach it. Um, but it wouldn't have been as effective. So we have spent the last two years of teachers developing unit plans in our curriculum mapping system, working on lesson plans together. Now, of course, when I look at that across 70 teachers, are they all the same? No, and there's still some areas for growth, so it can be a little messy. But the biggest difference is teachers are working together. They're talking about what they're teaching. And the nice part about having, an, you know, as you said, leading up front, by having up front, here is a system we're going to use to do that. Now everything is saved. And so when new teachers come into our school, um, in new teacher induction, I show them, here's our curriculum mapping suite. Here's all the work that's already been done. So they have a frame of reference. Um, but then it's also connected to individuals. Here are the teachers that can help you. Here's the teachers who are part of a team. Um, so it, it gives a lot of peace of mind when teachers come in to say, okay, this school already has a culture of collaboration and planning. And here's a curriculum mapping suite where I can see that I can already get an idea of what it is I need to be doing. Have um, you found that it's impacted the culture of the te like teacher to teacher interactions and relations because they are collaborating. And even from that onboarding perspective, I would imagine if I'm a new teacher coming into the system, into your school to see that I already have a point of, of conversation. In essence, I'm not going to, hopefully I'm not suffering that old, you know, uh, saying about being in a one-person schoolroom, even if you're a part of a major campus or a big campus, that sort of feeling that you're on your own to kind of figure it out, right? So do you see that that's changed the conversations, the way that they interact because they're playing an active role? And, and in a world where you're not, it's not top-down, right? You're not coming down as the academic dean saying, this is exactly what needs to be done. I would think that impacts relationships. Absolutely. Um, I've seen this in particular in our English department. Um, we had a few teachers retire recently, so we, it was an opportunity to add some more teachers to our faculty. Uh, plus, our school grew a little bit, so um, we were able, we had to kind of change up who was teaching what in English. And through curriculum mapping, plan board, and by just having those teachers, their classrooms right next to each other, they collaborate all day long. They are sharing lessons with one another, they're talking about what they're teaching. Uh, we do peer observations, so I've been looking at what they've been doing with peer observations, learning from each other, um, and so really kind of what they have done is an example of what we want to see kind of everybody do. Um, it doesn't happen overnight, and it's still in some areas an area for growth because, you know, people are people, right, and they're coming from their own backgrounds and skill set and comfort zones and what they've got on their plate, but um, it's been nice because I feel now that we have a culture where people are afraid or not afraid to ask questions. They're not afraid to say, you know, I don't know how to approach this lesson or I want to do this unit better. Does anyone have some ideas? 
Um, for example, one of our teachers sent an email out to the whole faculty and staff last week to say, I'm trying this new project, um, kind of like a shark tank. The kids are gonna be presenting these presentations. I've never done this before, um, but invited teachers to come and be the, the guest judges and to see it. Um, that's, that's really what we're looking for here, um, that kind of openness and collaboration. I get the sense, I'll go out on a limb here, Michael, that it's also impacted you and your approach to engaging with your faculty. Is that fair? I mean, people can't see your face and your, your facial re, you know, uh, gestures, but you, it's, there's a great sense of peace and sort of excitement and enjoyability discussing these things yeah. about the staff. Um, absolutely. I, I'm so proud of our, our faculty is amazing. Um, all dedicated professionals, um, you know, and I always think back as all the things that we're asking them to do. <laughs> Six classes, every teacher has either two sports or two clubs, and at Catholic school, we wear many hats, um, but um, I'm proud of how far they've come. I mean, everybody has the best of intentions, they've, their, their hearts in it, um, they love the kids, that's the most important piece, so um, you know, these last few years of them working together on curriculum and discussing what they're teaching um, has really kind of made things come alive. Uh, doesn't mean there's not areas for growth and improvement, like every school, right? There's always something to work on and improve, but, um, you know, I feel like we have that climate of collaboration and trust at all levels now. And I still teach a class, so, um, and that's important to me because I can still live the life of a teacher. And I'm teaching a brand new course, so I feel like <laughs> I'm planning and I've gone to AP training and, um, you know, but you're a newbie. <laughs> well, Michael, it's been a great, it's been a great pleasure to spend some time. It sounds like you've got a, a wonderful culture there that continues to grow. We want to thank Michael Broach. He's the academic Dean, teacher and director of transportation at Bishop Kenny in Jacksonville, Florida. Thank you for listening to this episode of education today presented by soundtrap for education. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you again next time right here in the studio.